squadron. They called him Bullets. But we call him Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly is on the air on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Yes, yes, yes. A major victory for people who believe in merit uh, over uh, optics, uh, substance, over style. And I am um, really pleased uh, what happened yesterday. It happened during this show that Claudine Gay, I could care less usually about university presidents, but she was so bad. I mean, so terrible. Uh, very, uh, very easy on the anti-Semites on campus, uh, ripping off people's language, people's words. You're not supposed to do that as a professor. You're not supposed to do that as a student. You're not supposed to do that. No one's supposed to do that. Only uh, university presidents uh, can do that, and presidents can do that. <laughs> yeah, it all this whole damn thing with the Harvard president and the copycat and the uh, anti-Semitism reminds me of Joe Biden, um, who tolerates anti-Semitism. Has he been leading the charge against all of this anti-Semitic hate we've seen all over the place? No. He's been very, very quiet. He's talked more about Islamophobia than anti-Semitism. And uh, what else about him? Oh, yeah, he's a big-time plagiarist, a total copycat, been doing it all his life. I do mean all of his life. He got caught in college. He got caught as a senator. He got caught as a vice president. He rips off words, rips off uh, Ukraine and China, too. Actually, he doesn't rip them off. He That's, uh, that's money for goods and services provided, services provided. You want to hear Joe Biden uh, stealing people's words? And he actually paid a big price for it when he got caught the first time, back when we had a robust media that actually stood for something. Sure, they lean left, but they also kind (laughs) of knew what was right, what was wrong, what was truth, what was not. Here's Joe Biden, a series of clips from the 1980s. And you'll first it's Joe's voice, and then you'll hear the people that he's copying from. I'll have to fill you in. I think the first one is uh, Robert F. Kennedy. But first... Joe Biden saying something that is totally and completely uh, not written by him or his speechwriters. They just stole it. Go ahead. But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society. It cannot measure the health of our children, the quality of our education, the joy of their play. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children. Robert F. Kennedy. The quality of their education for the joy of their play. Let us pledge that our generation of Americans will pay any price, bear any burden, accept any challenge, and meet any hardship to secure the blessings of prosperity and the promise of opportunity for our children. We shall pay any price, (laughs) bear any burden, JFK, meet any hardship, support any friend, Oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why am I the first Kinnick in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Why is that, that was my Neil wife Kinnock. sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family? To ever go to college. Why is Glenis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. 
Does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment? Of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. All right. So with what we know now, we have, uh, I think, all the evidence we need. Joe Biden must resign immediately. I think he has to follow the example of Claudine Kay and leave. It is amazing, isn't it? Um, there's also this. Joe Biden, in many ways, is president, is an affirmative action hire himself. He's an affirmative action hire. His whole life has been about affirmative action, actually, in a weird way. Yeah. In a way, you know, style over substance. Uh, stuff that is not about the ability to get the job done, but the package that's presented, the package of Joe Biden. When he presented himself for the U.S. Senate in 1972, he was 29 years old, and his big campaign theme was, I'm young. I'm younger than the old guy. The 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 guy I'm running against is 60. I'm, I'm 29. You should take a chance on me. It wasn't any deeper than that. Uh, what else? You know, when he gets to the Senate and he actually runs for president unsuccessfully, he's, you know, everybody has this guy's number from a nowhere state. Nobody's ever actually scrutinized his record until now. And now they're not even, they're not even doing it now. Some of us are, but he's still getting a pass. Um, what was I getting at? Oh yeah. When, when Obama picked him in 2008, why did they pick him? Of all the people in the world, Joe Biden, why Joe? Well, it was for optics. It was for packaging. Wasn't that Joe was some master of the Senate? Wasn't that Joe was some incredibly bright man? No, everybody knew he was a dunce. Everybody knew he was a go-along, get-along, slap on the back, just a a superficial guy. He was picked because he was older. He was older. He had been in the Senate for about, what, 36 years. Obama had been there for two, (laughs) two years. So he couldn't pick somebody who was, you know, young. He had to pick somebody who was old. He also had to pick somebody who was white, actually. He could not pick somebody of color. And not not according to me. I mean, I, I would have taken a look at it. You know, I did vote for Obama in 2008. I know. Don't crash your car. I did. I was conned by him. All right? I, I was conned. I was taken in. Also, I'm sorry, but McCain and Sarah Palin, no way. No way. So, um, yeah. But I wouldn't have cared if he picked a uh, a black person. But the pundits... Barack Obama was listening to said, you can't do that. That's too much change. That's too much change. You got to go with a white guy. You got to go with somebody older because you're so young. It was an affirmative action hire in many, many ways, right? Does that make sense? Or just at least hired for something that had nothing to do with ability. This, you see this throughout history. I think it's, it's bad when anybody is promoted beyond their ability because of, well, the packaging. And this happens all the time. People of color, white people, Women, sometimes men. Here's another example where it's a, a white man. <laughs> a white man was picked because of the of the optics. Uh, who remembers Dan Quayle? Dan Quayle, vice president under George H.W. Bush. Why did he pick Dan Quayle? Well, George H.W. Bush was uh, older. He needed a young person. He also needed somebody, not because, not I don't think this, but this is what the political experts at the time said, you got to pick somebody from uh, the Midwest. you got to pick somebody so they can find quail. Also, H.W. wasn't known to be too conservative. He was. Uh, he didn't know even really what he believed in. Great guy, great man, you know, served his country, World War II, got shot down, hero. Hero in many ways. 
But he had no idea what he wanted to do, what he wanted to do for the country. What did he call it? The vision thing. He had no vision. Anyway, conservatives were skeptical of uh, George H.W. Bush, so he went to Quayle, who was like a, a, a true blue conservative. Unfortunately, when you turn the TV cameras on, the guy uh, was a fraidy cat and got. <laughs> I mean, look, he, he did not lose George H.W. Bush because of Quayle, but Quayle did not help, and even. George Bush acknowledged in his diary, which he later allowed somebody to put in a book, that he blew it when he picked Dan Quayle. This happens all the time. Happens all the time. Uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, why, we gotta find out from Cuomo. He comes through, uh, through here every year. Why did you pick that airhead to be governor? Seriously. What the hell were you thinking? I think what he was thinking was, what a lot of politicians think, they don't want anybody too good as their number two. You want somebody nice and mediocre. Believe me, I don't want Sean Hannity filling in for me, okay? I, you get it? Like, I, you just, it's a human tendency. It's a human tendency. So he picks somebody weak, and then she follows the same playbook. Do you remember? She had a, who's her lieutenant governor right now? Nobody knows. Nobody in the world knows. It's some guy named Delgado, I believe. He's from upstate. Nice guy, but he wasn't the first pick. The first pick was a guy named uh, State Senator Benjamin. And about 20 minutes after, all she wanted was a black person. I need a black person. Get me a black man. This is how these people talk and think. And they found Benjamin right away. Al Sharpton said, this is your guy. They all raised their hands up. Two days later, he was arrested. <laughs> Two days later. Because when you make it about optics and you use your, you're literally using your eyes instead of your head, Right. So you look, and the first person you see that fits the bill, aha, that must be the one. Kind of like Claudine Gay. They found her, I'm told, um, you know, usually you have a national search for a university president that goes on and on and on. Uh, could take a year. It took like, uh, two weeks to come up with Claudine Gay, who worked down the hall. Uh, Claudine Gay is blaming everybody, it looks like, but herself, but her own copycat self. She, I mm, should actually be pleased that she wasn't fired immediately for the uh, for the crazy, in, unsensitive, insensitive uh, anti-Semitic stuff. Remember, they got rid of that University of Pennsylvania lady in about li- literally in less than a day. They got rid of her. She got fired when they showed up at the uh, Capitol Hill and were so wildly out of touch and not just caught up in the moment. <laughs> they that was their strategy. To say that it's okay to say genocide on campus. As long as you don't actually carry out genocide, it's okay to talk about genocide and inflicting it on Jewish people. As long as you actually don't set up a gas chamber on campus. All right? That's the kind of thing that they deliberate. That was their strategy. And once it saw the light of day, once it got out of uh, Williams and Conley or whatever law office put them up to that nonsense or said it was actually okay to say, um, you know, in the light of day, you can't. That's 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 insanity, and everybody knows it. Um, Claudine Gay kept her job. Uh, the uh, 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 copycat stuff did her in. All right, hey, you know who's the real hero in all of this? A guy named, is it Ackerman or Ackman? Ackerman, Bill Ackerman. What, wh- Ackman? Ackman, Bill Ackman. He's a billionaire, he's smart as hell, and he's brave. He's brave, just like our our favorite billionaire, John Casamitidis. He's brave, puts his uh, puts his you know what on the line, takes a stand. Not many, not all billionaires are like that. A lot of billionaires just want to keep the money and go with the flow and whatever it takes, whatever's cool at the moment. Just let me keep making my money. 
People like John Katz say no way, and people like Bill Ackman say no way. He put out this. He's been leading this cause. He's been leading the cause about uh, fighting anti-Semitism on campus. I guess he went to Harvard University, and he has this tremendous uh, essay that he put out. I don't like uh, I usually sit around reading somebody's essays, and he put this on Twitter. It's long. I cut it down to all the good parts. And this man, you know what? Bill Ackman for vice president under Donald Trump. Stranger things have happened. When I come back, this is a great American. He's a great New Yorker. He's one of us. He led the charge in getting rid of uh, Claudine Gay. He's leading the charge in getting rid of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. And he's also providing a great service in terms of shining a light on DEI, what it really is. It's not diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is bad enough. It's actually something much more sinister. I'll have it when we come back. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. The thing that really disturbs me is unrelenting campaign from the right and from some mm-hmm. conservative activists to uh, slander, discredit, and ultimately, I, I guess, uh, you know, somebody used the phrase, uh, we've claimed a scalp. I said, I think, on uh, social media, you know, to essentially unseat gay and other presidents as well um, when they don't like, uh, you know, not just the handling of uh, the horrific attacks on Israel on October 7th, the way that that was handled on campus, but really anything else uh, that they don't like. about This is Mara uh, Gay. From the New York Times, she's triggered when she sees an American flag. <laughs> she actually doesn't like the American flag. She feels like it's racist against black people. Um, she is there saying like that we conservatives, um, a scalp. People talk about scalps all the time. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean literally, obviously. And, uh, yeah, there are things we don't like about her, like her weakness on anti-Semitism. Okay. That's a legitimate complaint. And you can't have a position like that and be a copycat. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, Al Sharpton said this is an attack on black women everywhere. I mean, these guys, Ibram X. Kendi said that this is a racist attack against black women. Are you guys insane? This is, well, it is the world we live in and uh, whatever. It's amusing. They're opposite. What they say is amusing, although it's also downright dangerous. Hey, this Bill Ackman thing, just real quick here, when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion, he learned something, and I'm learning something. He said, the more research I did, the more I learned, the more I concerned I became, and the more ignorant I realized I had been about DEI, a powerful movement that has not only pervaded Harvard, but the educational system at large. I came to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion was not what I had naively thought those words meant. I have always believed that diversity is an important feature of a successful organization. But by diversity, I mean diversity in its broadest form. 
diversity of viewpoints, politics, ethnicity, race. I don't know if I really agree with them there, but um, experience, socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then he goes like this. This is the important part. What I learned, however, was that DEI was not about diversity in its purest form, but rather DEI was a political advocacy movement on behalf of certain groups that are deemed oppressed under DEI's own methodology. Under DEI, one's degree of oppression is determined based upon where one resides on a so-called intersectional pyramid of oppression, where whites... Jews and Asians are deemed oppressors and a subset of people of color, LGBTQ people and or women are deemed to be oppressed under this ideology, which is the philosophical underpinning of DEI as advanced by Ibram X. Kendi and others. One is either an anti-racist or a racist. There is no such thing as being not racist. (laughs) All right. One more. Under DEI's ideology, any policy, program, educational system, economic system, grading system, admission policy, and even climate change due to its disparate impact on geographies and the people that live there, that leads to unequal outcomes among people of different skin colors, and that is deemed racist. As a result, according to DEI, capitalism is racist. Advanced placement exams are racist. IQ tests are racist. Corporations are racist. (laughs) Any merit-based program system or organization which has or generates outcomes for different races that are at variance with the proportion these different races represent in the population at large is by definition racist under DEI's ideology. And he goes on for about 10 pages. He's a marvelous guy, and he's only in his late 50s. Bill Ackman from Westchester County became a billionaire, I guess, through finance stuff, right? Finance, loans, banking, whatever. Um, The thing about DEI, and you just heard how pernicious and dangerous it is, basically every corporation in America now has a DEI officer. But a lot of us just think that's more than just, okay, we want people to... You know, we want racial diversity. We want this. We want. No, it's about this oppress oppressor thing. And it gets very weird and very dark and very communist. Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. As a veteran of many years in American politics, I'm going to tell you something somewhat shocking. Joe Biden will not be the nominee of the Democratic Party in 2024. Kamala Harris become president, but the only way in their party they can replace a woman of color is with another woman of color. And yes, you heard it here first. The Democratic nominee for president will be Michelle Obama. Wow, that is Roger Stone, the political icon, New York Times bestselling author and Trump loyalist. You got to go to the Stone Zone, folks. It's all there. And listen to him right here on WABC, Sundays at 4 o'clock. Roger Stone just came out with his best-dressed list. Um, shockwaves all over the world, including right here. Uh, Roger Stone, welcome back. How are you, sir? Greg, great to be with you, and congratulations for, for the second year, making my 15th annual international best and worst dressed list. Uh, two, two folks at WABC there, Larry Kudlow, one of the great dressers of all time, he, he's in the lifetime achievement category, uh, and you are among the very best dressed. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I mean, what a, what a, you know, and by the way, 
Roger Stone, you're famous for your high style. I remember reading a profile about you in GQ magazine. I think it was 1989 or 1990. It was about your political acumen and also your sartorial uh, expertise. I want to talk close in a moment. But first, that clip I just played, Michelle Obama, the nominee, uh, you still think that's going to happen for the Democrats? I still really do. I mean, uh, Joe Biden's uh, inability to perform on the stump, his inability to seem to know what day of the week it is, uh, his reading the stage directions is falling down, uh, combined with the disastrous impact of his policies on energy prices, inflation, uh, the looming possibility of World War III because of his weak policies abroad. Now you combine that with the burgeoning uh, corruption scandal surrounding his son, his brother, and himself, in all honesty. I think Democrats are becoming very nervous. Their rules with the superdelegates that they're now mentioned makes swapping out their nominee much, much easier than it would be within the Republican Party. Uh, and Michelle Obama is the most popular Democrat in the country, uh, and her husband controls the levers of power in the modern Democratic Party. Her hut. Wait. Oh, yeah. Barack Obama, of course. All right. So uh, Biden will clinch the nomination officially, right? He's going to clinch it and then hand it over. What's the time frame? Actually, skip that. What does this mean for President Trump? Assuming President Trump gets the nomination, as I, I'm sure he will and as I hope he does. I'm a big loyalist myself, I consider. Is this what kind of problems does this present him or or opportunities? Well, first of all, it may not be as cut and dried as I believe it is. Look, I'm not a Democratic Party insider. I suspect that there's very substantial pushback from Dr. Jill Biden, uh, as well as Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, And I'm not so sure that Joe wants to go. I think he wants to maintain the legal power to pardon himself and his brother and his son and other members of his family, potentially. Uh, But they could really, uh, Joe could announce at any time that he doesn't feel up to it, that his Health will not allow it. Uh, It would be probably easier to do it before the convention, but I think it's an open question. Uh, I talked to President Trump uh, about this uh, generally uh, a couple weeks ago. He'd prefer a rematch with Joe Biden, which I think is understandable. The president believes he won last time against Joe Biden. I think he can beat him again, in his view. Uh, And he'd prefer to run against the weakest Democrat. That would be Joe Biden. But Trump is uh, the Trump juggernaut just continues to amaze. I mean, Greg, it's counterintuitive. Normally, a candidate gets charged with crimes. They go down in the polls. Their money dries up. In this case, Trump gets charged with fabricated crimes, uh, really elected interference. uh, And it is turbocharged his standing with the American people, with the voters and brought in millions of dollars of small and medium sized campaign contributions. You know, um, you. You touched on a couple of things there. Uh, I want to go back to 1972 when, when, when Biden became a big shot in politics. 1972. This is even before Watergate or before Watergate broke. Do you think Joe Biden learned a bunch of lessons back then? Like, you know, politicians back then, they cut all kinds of corners. And I think he stopped growing intellectually and he did all these things that LBJ did and Nixon did to some degree. You know, you could get rich in politics. And that's kind of the playbook he's been following because he became a big shot when he was 29 years old, before Watergate, before all that stuff, and he's kind of trapped in that era. I agree with that analysis. I think Joe Biden's brother and his son have been absolutely rapacious in terms of using Joe Biden's position 
to enrich themselves. And it appears, based on the work of Representative Comer and the Oversight Committee, to also uh, enrich uh, Joe and Jill Biden. Uh, It's interesting. I had dinner recently with a former Democrat U.S. senator, no longer serving, uh, who said, look, Joe was he was never well liked in the Senate. Uh, Normally, if a Democrat senator went to another Democrat senator with a matter that was important to them, but not in their committee, they would get a courtesy Uh, from Joe Biden. You would get a fundraising request. Oh, you want me to do that? Well, you got to your guys have to raise me 100 grand. Uh, He's always been kind of a know it all, kind of a smart aleck. Uh, going back to the Clarence Thomas hearings particularly. Uh, so, yeah, I think he was trapped in a, another era. And uh, in all honesty, he hung out with the segregationist clique in the Senate when he got there. He ran in 1972 in opposition uh, desegregation of the Wilmington public schools uh, and as an opponent uh, of busing. And, of course, he is uh, responsible for the 19. 19- uh, 84, uh, pardon me, 1994 crime bill, uh, which criminalized uh, for the first time, provided the fir- the, the mandatory uh, uh, sentences for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs. Now, I'm not for drugs, but those kind of people with no prior criminal record, they belong in drug treatment programs, not incarcerated. We're not talking about drug king- kingpins or drug dealers. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the housewife with three kids uh, who's trying to make ends meet and gets caught with a small amount of marijuana in her purse. Hey, I'm so going- you should have discretion, you know? Totally, totally. And he, here's another little sign about Joe Biden. And I'm going through, uh, I believe, let's see here. Joe Biden has made the list in the past, your list, best dressed. You know, what? say whatever you want to say about Joe Biden. He dresses very well, and in my opinion, too well. If you look closely, that his clothes are very, very expensive, and they always have been. In fact, um, I think it was Rona Barrett or Kitty Kelly wrote about him in the 1970s and said he dressed rich. He dressed beyond his means or what was supposed to be his means. Um, is that a sign or something? Because he's a politician. He's not a, he's never been in the private sector for any, you know, length of time. He dresses almost too nicely for a career politician. Fair enough? Yes. And I don't, how does he afford both a beach home uh, in Rehoboth and a, uh, and a mansion in Greenville, which is the most exclusive part of Wilmington on a U.S. senator and then a vice president's salary? So, I mean, I, look, I think they can resist. They can stonewall to, use an expression as long as they want, sooner or later, the finances of this president uh, are going to get laid bare. I think people are going to find that he and his wife, along with other members of his family, have profited handsomely uh, by their from their public service. You know, I see, uh, we all know President Trump, as you mentioned, they arrested him, indicted him 16 times, and his numbers have only gone up. And, uh, the likelihood of being him being the next president has only increased dramatically. I know you're a man of faith. In my opinion, I see the hand of God in this. You know, he, the hand of God is everywhere, but I mean, it is like in your face, almost laugh out loud funny in a good way how Donald Trump is triumphing amidst all of this adversity that they're attempting to inflict upon him. Is that a little bit, am I, am I too much out there? Because I think God laughs at, at people's plans and Democrats had this plan and it's just blowing up and going nowhere. No, I, I look, I totally agree. I've been very forthright here on WABC and my daily show at stonezone.com. 
Sonjo.live, pardon me, that I uh, underwent a redemption when I had problems, when I was fighting the witch hunt, uh, which I had done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, I changed my life. I confessed my sins. Uh, I was redeemed in the blood of the cross. So, yes, I believe in miracles. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ will not let this last best beacon of freedom on the face of the earth uh, go under. Uh, and I think the the man to to fix it, the man who has the courage and the stamina and the strength, and I think now the clarity of understanding to uh, stop the decline of America is Donald Trump, and I think he's going to succeed. I agree. I agree totally. Hey, uh, listen, uh, in a moment I want to talk about clothes, but first – how are you doing overall? I mean, the government, my gosh, they've been hassling you and the FBI showing up. I know I think you were issued a, a, a pardon or a commutation or whatever it was. You were restored, uh, but they are still hassling you. I saw MSNBC. You were writing a memo. <laughs> you were dictating a memo, which I believe we're allowed to do. And they were trying to make a federal case out of it. I couldn't believe it. Everything you were saying was like totally constitutionally protected free speech. Where are you right now in terms of your uh, legal fights? Are they all done? Are they ongoing? What's up? Well, I'd like to say they're all over. I'm, I still have uh, 11 outstanding civil suits that have been filed against my wife and I by liberals and Democrats and crackpots and nut jobs. And, oh, pardon me. I'm being redundant. Uh, they're all meritless. They're, they're, it's lawfare. It's try, what they're trying to do to Donald Trump on a much, much smaller basis. Uh, but a, a week ago, maybe a little more, Ari Melber with MSNBC comes up with the fact that, that Special Counsel Jack Smith has obtained the cell phone records for Donald Trump on January 6th, as well as the cell phone records of another unidentified individual uh, and then they cut to uh, footage of me correctly uh, pleading amendment before the January 6th committee to the specific question of whether I spoke to Donald Trump on January 6th. Well, first of all, Greg, your lawyer tells you if you elect to assert your Fifth Amendment right, you must do it to every question you're asked. You don't get to pick and choose which questions to answer. Uh, and the truth is, no, I did not speak to Donald Trump or any member of his staff on January 5th. Or sick. There is no cell phone record that will prove otherwise. And no, pleading the Fifth Amendment is not evidence of guilt. It's specifically not evidence of guilt. The truth is, I had no contact with the president between December 28th of 2020 uh, and March 24th of 2021, when my wife finished uh, her cancer treatment successfully, I'm happy to say, praise Jesus, uh, and he invited us to Mar-a-Lago. So it, it, they just make this stuff up. And MSNBC is the very worst at it, to say the least. You know, um, Roger, I'm actually personally very proud of my January 6th coverage. I've uh, been one of the lone, if I may say so, truth tellers. And uh, I think uh, some of the key questions haven't been answered. They haven't even been asked. But one thing I want to point out to you, you know, the left and the January 6th committee, they'd love to point out that, well, Brian Kilmeade called President Trump on January 6th and didn't get through, but told him he had to put out a statement. And, uh, you know, some friend of uh, Ivanka Trump's tried to get through and called him and had this advice. You know who did not call him? His vice president didn't call him. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did not call him. Uh, his secretary of defense did not call him. All of these people, they did not initiate phone calls to the president. And the presidency doesn't work where... I don't know. The president is sitting there like a security guard, and he monitors 
uh, video and says, oh, there's a problem in the basement of the Capitol. I better call somebody. That is totally absurd. Do you think it's does it reveal something that people like Pence did not pick up the phone and they don't point it out? Nobody has pointed that out as far as I can see. Oh, well, I can tell you this. The January 6th committee hearing was a, was a ridiculous kabuki dance. Uh, every member of the committee was anti-Trump, so there was no balance. In my particular case, uh, the witnesses perjured themselves. Uh, one specific witness, Cassidy Hutchison, said that uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was told by President Trump to call Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn on the 5th to find out what was happening on the 6th. Greg, there is no such call. That just never happened, period. Just never happened. It's just made up. In other cases, they they Mitch and Max, or they'll show a, they'll use a, an audio voice track of you, but they match it to a different, to a, a different uh, uh, visual. Uh, it, and that's why they destroyed all the evidence, by the way. Uh, I'd like to see Speaker Johnson uh, now appoint a committee of the House to investigate the investigation done by the January 6th committee. And he ought to get on with that. He ought to get on with that. Hey, uh, listen, do me a favor. Can you just stick with me for uh, uh, through one commercial break? I want to talk to you sure. about martinis, and I want to talk to you about your amazing wardrobe and this list. Thank you very much. Roger Stone will be right back. Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Well, we're back with the legendary, iconic uh, Roger Stone, who just came out with that best dress list and worst dress list. you got to go to the Stone Zone, stonezone.com, for all kinds of content and uh, uh, maybe even some merchandise. Really great stuff. Roger Stone. Roger Stone, thanks again. Uh, how, did, how did you find out that Nixon liked his martinis a certain way? In what way was that? Well, in the uh, in his post-presidential years, um, uh, I worked closely with President Nixon, uh, handling his schedule and uh, vetting invitations, uh, running political errands, passing messages, and so on. Uh, and Nixon himself was very uh, was not very introspective. He was very very forward-looking. It was very hard to get him to talk about the past. You know, Eisenhower, Jack Kennedy, uh, the attack on Caracas, the uh, the great events of his life, Joe McCarthy, except for when he had a couple cocktails. <laughs> then he became absolutely loquacious. Uh, and uh, he calls uh, his martini recipe the silver bullet. He would say, do you want a silver bullet? <laughs> this was uh, originally in his townhouse on the Upper East Side, later out in Saddle River, New Jersey. And I said, yes, sir, I'd love one. So uh, here is the recipe. You take a bottle of olives. Uh, you drain the juice, you fill it with water, you shake it up, you drain the water, you fill it with dry vermouth, you put it in the refrigerator. You have pre-chilled a couple of martini glasses by splashing with water, throwing them in the freezer. Now you take uh, your cocktail shaker, uh, which could be aluminum or could be sterling silver. Uh, you fill it with a combination of both cracked but also cubed ice. Uh, you pour in the suitable amount, in this case, of vodka, uh, and you shake very, very, very aggressively, huh. as Nixon would say. If there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini, well, that means you effed it up. Uh, and uh, you, you pour it into your glass. You retrieve the bottle from the refrigerator. You drop in one or two marinated olives, and there you have Richard Nixon's silver bullet. Huh. And I said, wow, Mr. President, this is really great. He said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. 
<laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad the recipe is over because it's very tempting. I stopped drinking about six years ago, but boy, oh boy, that sounds really, really good. Hey, you mentioned the townhouse on the Upper East Side. I don't know if you know this, but listen to this, Roger. That townhouse was, uh, I believe, on East 65th between 3rd and Lex. You know who else lived on East 65th between 3rd and Lex? Three other presidents. Donald Trump lived there for a time. Uh, FDR lived there for uh, many years. And General Grant lived there. So what is that? One, two, three, four presidents on one block in New York City. Isn't that crazy? Did you know that? I did not know that. But then uh, in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, uh, John Kennedy was there. That's one president. Lyndon Johnson was there. He became president. Richard Nixon was in town. He was a former vice president who would become president. Uh, and George H.W. Bush just happened to be in town. Ooh. What are the odds on that? I did not know about George H.W. Bush. Hey, and maybe you can verify this for me. Um, I heard that Nixon found out about Kennedy's death. So he flies out of Dallas, and uh, you know Nick, uh, Kennedy's not dead yet. He gets to LaGuardia, gets out, and some woman, he's in his car, and a woman is like flailing on the corner, and then she faints, and they get out to see what's wrong with her, and then she faints again. And she tells him, oh, Kennedy just died, and, and, and then I saw you. <laughs> so she was totally traumatized. Is that a true story? How did Nixon find out about Kennedy? Do we know? Uh, that, is, that is all accurate. Uh, he then told the cab driver to turn on the radio, uh, and he heard the report that Kennedy had uh, been shot. Uh, it had not yet been verified that he was dead. By the time he got to his uh, uh, his uh, apartment building on Park Avenue, where he lived in the same building as. Oops. Oh, shoot. Did we lose him? Doorman said, uh, uh, oh, Mr. Vice President, I have terrible news. The president is dead. Nixon then went to his apartment, called J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, who, of course, he knew well, and said, uh, tell me, Edgar, uh, was it one of those right wing nuts? And Hoover said, no, Dick, it was a communist, which is interesting because Lee Harvey Oswald had not yet been apprehended. Wow. 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 Man, Roger Stone, you're amazing. The knowledge, the experience. And you know what? Uh, you're an expert, but you, you're a character, too, in the best way. You know, America has become so bland in so many ways. And you're out there. We appreciate you. Everybody's got to go to the Stone Zone and get this. Not to brag, uh, Roger Stone, but I just got a text from, you know who, the President of the United States with a picture of your best dress list and my name circled, Greg. I think this is absolutely fantastic. Best to you and John Katz and CR. I know who that is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you so much, Greg. God bless you. and Happy New Year.